0: Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode. But maybe not just another episode. Perhaps, in fact, one of the most long-anticipated episodes of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Kalman Lamb, and I'm joined today by my friend Derek Silva. Hey, Derek. Hey. Well, the episode today is <laughs> the sport management episode. Oh. Um, this is a conversation uh, we've really been meaning to have for a very long time. Uh, and I think that there are there's some things that we should say before we actually throw it to the conversation that Derek and I were privileged to have with Chen Chen, uh, an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut and really one of the most incisive uh, communicators of really the problems with sport management as a discipline. Yeah. But before we get... Yeah, but before we get into it, um, we gotta say a couple things. You know, th- normally we don't have to provide caveats before we begin an episode, but I think we should hear because it would be understandable if some of our listeners, and I know that I, really a tremendous proportion of our listeners in some way find themselves involved with sport management programs, whether it is as uh, students or teachers, And that's partly because sport management is really, at this point, the hegemonic space in institutions of higher education for engaging any kind of issues with sport. And so... It would be understandable, given that for anyone who is involved with sport management, that an episode that is going to be, I I would have to say, a searing indictment of sport management might be experienced in a kind of personal way as a sort of attack on those who have some form of affiliation with sport management. And I want to be really crystal clear here. This is not a personal attack, right? This is not meant to call people out for having involvement with the disciplinary field of sport management. The purpose of this episode is to talk about why sport management as a disciplinary frame and as an institutional structure teaches and and sort of reproduces all of the problems with sport and the way in which capitalist sport um, and white supremacist sport and so forth operates. Uh, And that's actually a form of constraint placed upon those who want to do critical work, but have to do it within the structure of sport management. Okay, so I just got to be so clear on that. Please don't take this personally. If you agree with uh, our critiques, but find yourself involved with sport management, this is not directed at you. No. Right, I, I see you as an ally in solidarity in this sort of project to try yeah. to unravel sport management as it is. Would you agree with that, Derek?
1: Yeah, and, and just to add a little bit, it, it so our discipline, our pri- primary discipline, sociology, has been like actively um, excluding sport as a general field of study for for decades. It's 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 an area of the field that gets completely ignored and. Uh, I think there's like an active uh, kind of push to not um, take our lens and apply it to sport. So w- it, in many ways, sport management is like the only place for folks who, who study sport, one of the few places for, for folks who study sport to actually go. Um, so yes. so I, I think it's really important to highlight like it's as much a critique of sport management as it has, actually is a critique of many of our academic disciplines who don't take sport seriously as a, a unit of analysis.
0: Yeah, that's well said. Um, now, with that, with that sort of put out there, um, I, I just want to give you a sense off the top because it kind of it, so perfectly it came to my attention this morning a piece that I should that should have been more on my radar, but I'd never really looked at it. Um, that's have to say, is so exemplary of the problems we're trying to highlight with sport management as a frame for understanding sport. Uh, And I want to shout out um, Dr. Wayne L. Black for for putting this on our radar this morning. the article is from 2014, published in the Journal of Intercollegiate Sport, and the article that I'm talking about right now is called The Myth of the Exploited Student-Athlete by Barbara Osborne at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I just want to say, in a way, although you know, we might make fun of this article, I think it's very representative in a lot of ways, maybe in an extreme way but in a lot of ways of what sport management as a project is really trying to teach students to think through and understand about sport. This article makes a series of what I would consider to be outrageous claims in defending um the college sports system as it exists. I just want to really quickly highlight a few of those claims. These were This was published in an academic peer-reviewed journal article. It passed peer review. The article makes claims like the fact that we shouldn't understand college athletes as exploited because they receive compensation in the form of the opportunity to play for a highly paid coach. And I quote, it is the student athlete who benefits from the coach's services. Those highly paid coaches are often the reason student athletes choose to attend that institution. <laughs> Another claim that the argument makes is that playing in front of large crowds, and and again, what, what, what that means is playing in front of large crowds means that you're producing a form of commodity spectacle that can be sold to consumers, right? So in other words, your labor is directly producing a commodity that has significant value. But according to Barbara Osborne... Actually, actually, the compensation you receive is being able to compete in front of large crowds. Wow. I'm quoting, I'm quoting, being able to compete in front of large crowds or on television is an additional intangible benefit that football and and men's basketball players receive that others don't. Okay. Um she goes on to point out that, quote, an economic model that treats football and men's basketball players the same as every other student athlete would save athletics departments millions of dollars. <laughs> so in other oh, words, they're being paid too much. They're being yeah. too paid too much in the form of locker rooms and, and facilities, they're being paid. Too much. Wow. And then this is one of our favorites, Derek, because, yeah. uh, you know, in our in our book, we highlight um, the fact that, you know, one of the most specious defenses of the college sports system is that they signed up for it. argument. Yeah. Yeah. This is an argument you usually see from apologists online, right? Angry Twitter trolls and whatnot. But here we have it in an academic journal article. Barbara Osborne writes, quote, First, from a legal perspective, attending college is always a choice. No one is legally forced to go, but even the small percentage of student athletes who are primarily focused on a future professional career in sport are making a choice that is similar to that of all students attending colleges or universities. And then let me just give you one more. The kicker here is this. This is really beautiful. Did you think that people go to athletic events in order to watch athletes compete at a high level? If you thought that, you're something of a rube because actually, and I quote, student athletes do not generate revenue. Student athletes train train and play games, whether anyone watches their performance on the court, field, pool, rink, or track. Some sports attract more fans that are willing to watch their games. But spectators do not change the nature of what student-athletes do, nor does it turn those athletes into revenue generators. I'll tell you who generates revenue, Derek, and I continue quoting, The sports are revenue generators, and athletic department employees in the ticket office, in marketing, and in athletics development, and fundraising, generate revenue. Mm. So— now, finally, Barbara Osborne has explained to me why we need hundreds of people staffing athletic departments. It's precisely because they are the ones doing the work that makes those athletic departments possible. Um, so, so, thank you very much, Barbara Osborne and the Journal of Intercollegiate Sport.
1: For I felt I had the, to, yeah, go ahead. For perhaps the most um, illogical and unsupported piece I've read in a long time.
0: Uh, yeah, it re- it really is. Um, so the very fact that a piece like this could exist, this is the kind of problem in sports management that we are here to highlight today. And in a moment, we're going to throw it to the episode, but we just want to remind you, please, please, um, rate and review the show on uh, Apple podcasts and other podcasting platforms. Please subscribe. We are going to be sending you episodes all summer long. Every week, um, this is the hot End of Sport podcast summer, so please participate <laughs> by subscribing to the show. Follow us on Twitter at End of Sport Pod, um, and I hope you enjoy our uh, deconstruction of sport management.
1: Yeah, and, and, it, and if you are offended, if you're in sport management, please uh, don't do any of those things until, like, give it a day or two to, to kind of um, uh, digest before you do any of the, 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 the previous
0: yeah, it's like it's like when we give our students a grade. It's like please, please don't come and talk to us in office hours. So cool until you just had a time to to cool down a little bit first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chen Chen is assistant professor of sport management in the University of Connecticut's Neague School of Education. He is the absurdly published author of seemingly countless high-quality academic journal articles that interrogate the themes of capitalism, racism, imperialism, and settler colonialism, both in the discipline of sport management and in high-performance sport more broadly. We could have invited Chen on the show to discuss really any number of issues in sports, since there are few people with whom we more ardently agree on just about every subject, quite frankly. But we have brought him on today to focus on a topic that we have long stewed over, but never devoted an actual episode to. That topic is sport management as a discipline. Chen, welcome to the show.
2: Glad to be here. Longtime fan of the show.
0: Well, it's so it's so awesome to have you on. Uh, I can't wait to get into the conversation, but I want to start with something that honestly we don't really normally do, uh, which is to offer just a bit of a disclaimer off the top here. I know that many of our listeners are in some way located in the field of sport management, and indeed, to borrow a problematic turn of our fr- turn of phrase, some of our best friends even are sport management scholars. This is to say nothing. That nothing we will offer in this conversation is meant as a personal attack on those who work in sport management, often as a consequence of structural and institutional constraints that make it the only arena in which scholarship on sport is possible within the academy today. It is precisely that issue, among others, we attempt to take up in this critique of the discipline as a system or structure. In that sense, we examine sport management through a sort of sociological imagination that views the personal through the structural. Indeed, history shows us how sociology as a discipline has been incredibly antagonistic and exclusionary for any scholar looking to study sport. Needless to say, we have thoughts on sociology as well.
1: So I think with, with that little uh, disclaimer, I think the best place for this discussion of, uh, of sport management to start is actually to define for listeners what the heck sport management is as an academic discipline. What distinguishes it from Fields like sociology or history of sport or sports studies, for that matter. What is the project of sport management?
2: Wow, well, sport management. Um, I would have to also preface by saying that you know uh, I offer these observations as uh, as someone you know who uh, was an international doctoral student and now a faculty member at, at two different. Uh, institutions in Canada and the U.S. respectively. And uh, I would say that, you know, throughout the years, my understanding of sport management also um, uh, changed. I would say morphed into, uh, you know, I, I tend to view sport management now from a macro historical perspective, a materialist perspective, which means that I consider, importantly, what are the conditions in this particular historical juncture and in a given society enable and or constrain the possibility of knowledge production in the field and the types of knowledge and education delivered in sport management programs and all the uh that also leads to the questions a possibility of questions that could be asked by sport management scholars so um let's get into the definition um you know i Personally, would say that sport management is a is a field that is preoccupied in the understanding of um, how to make sport industry work more uh, efficient, profitable. Um, And uh, I would say that I would like to go back to some textbook definition. Uh, Some scholars in the field have defined sport management as you know, let's say as first a a field of practice, a practice wherein, uh, you know, business endeavors associated with sport, a career field that people can go into as sport management. We first understand sport management as a as a practical field, as a as a as a as a business endeavor. That's first. That's the first one. Mm-hmm. Second, I would say that we can also under, understand sport management as a uh, as a um, you know a, a a a type of college and university level academic programs that prepare students to assume positions in the sport industry. So we mm-hmm. see in University A, University B, there are sport management undergraduate and graduate programs. Um that meets the needs for the sport industry to uh, train uh, professionals that supposedly will work in managerial positions, so on and so forth. Um, and if I, if I were to look up some of the uh, definitions provided by scholars as to what exactly entails in the curriculum, for example, in the study of sport management degrees, we can, we can take a look at some of the most commonly uh, taught uh, subjects. These include organizational behavior and theory, consumer behavior, marketing, event and facility management, law, finance, economics, sociology, which I argue is becoming increasingly uh, um, few, and uh, communications, governance human resources and administration so these are still the second one i would say sport management degree programs the subjects that are taught Mm -hmm. and then we move on to sport management as a research field as a field of research and i'm drawing some definitions here Um, some scholars have defined sport management research Uh, as a systemic way of examining hunches, assumptions, and questions about a wide range of sport management phenomena. In particular, sport management researchers are interested in questions related to marketing, finance, communication, human resources, policy, etc. They argue that findings from these research investigations can inform, here importantly, Managerial practice, build knowledge in the subject area or both. So here is I, I give you some uh, definitions provided by um, established scholars in sport management, and uh, I also remember that uh, a Norwegian scholar, his name is Gamo Satter. He uh, describes sport management has become increasingly Sport industry management, mm-hmm. if we were to uh, have a more pithy understanding of what it entails. So uh, I'll pause there.
1: Yeah, it, see- it seems like the first two definitions that you are talking about are very pointed, very specific, and absolutely tangible in terms of what is happening in sport management. Whereas when you get to like the knowledge creation and knowledge production side uh, in your third definition... It seems like it mean it's meaningless. The words are just they don't describe anything actually being done. Would you say that that when it uh, when it comes to the research and knowledge production side of sport management that that is actually less influential um than uh the pragmatic side, let's call it the actual practitioner side and if so, and I think you you've already alluded to that and i and if so, do you find that um would you maybe uh conclude that sport management is in some ways counter to the goals of uh, higher education
2: uh, let me break down the, the the question in two parts first, you are asking me if the uh definition of the of the research of sport management is less tangible i I will have to say that that's that's because i i, I was uh I was using a shorter version. And, <laughs> and, and let, me, let, let me clarify. I would say there are longer versions of definition that are actually specify the types of research people do. And if we, go, if we also harken uh, back to the uh, subject areas that I mentioned earlier, so I would say, folks, think about sport management, management research as uh, covering. All those subject areas, organizational behavior, consumer behavior, marketing, event, facility management, law, finance, economics, communication, governance, human resources, and administration. So uh, I wouldn't say that it is necessarily having less of an impact than the uh, course or program delivery to undergraduate students. I would say that it's uh, it's it's hard for me to sit here and 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 make a sweeping assessment as to which has a bigger uh, impact. Mm-hmm. I, I I damn sure that there, there are impact there are impact by uh, uh, from these uh, sport management research endeavors mm-hmm. for the last three four decades since the establishment of those uh, professional associations. And maybe the bigger question is what kind of impact? What yeah. what type of impact impacting whom in what yeah. way? Yeah And uh, as far as Derek, you asked the second question, I would say, um, is it a legitimate field of inquiry? I would say that it is no less legitimate than, let's say research in the the parental field, management. Mm-hmm. Let's say. The, all the research activities done in business school if those those are quote unquote legitimate field it's hard for us to sit down and 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 say sport management is or is not legitimate i would also have to ask legitimate to whom it's mm-hmm. it's damn That's sure fine. legitimate to a, a certain type of people and yeah. communities and and interests and uh, would it be legitimate to everybody would it be legitimate to the people who may be on the uh, Receiving end of the deleterious consequences of the sport industry, and uh, that might be a different question.
1: <laughs> Great. Well, okay. Yeah, I, I was kind of um, maybe putting the cart before the horse, but for the whole episode, so I'll get back to the questions that we prepared here, Chen. I and now, now you've written like an absolutely brilliant article for a variety of reasons, and I urge our listeners to go um, check it out. It's called "Naming the Ghost of Capitalism in Sport Management." And in that piece, you suggest that sport management, and I'm quoting here while there appears to be an increasing momentum towards social change and and justice related agenda, capitalism as the predominant mode of economic organizing that structures the conditions of, quote, management of sport activities remains largely invisible and thus has rarely been questioned or challenged in this scholarship. Could you expand for us? Um, here on what the quote ghost of sport management is, and how and why you came to name it as such,
2: thank you. um I will if I may, I will return to the last question a little bit because I, the first question, a little bit because I believe that all these things I'm about to say are interconnected. I think I would like to give the listeners a little bit more of a context of sport management because. As I will allude to in in what I'm about to say, sport management has a very specific origin story, a genesis story. Um, Let me quickly go over it here. Sport management, as we conventionally understood, um, first emerged in the United States and North America, and some of these some of the first c- sport management-related r- courses began in the early 20th century. Um, and s- there are individual courses, not programmed yet, in the mm-hmm. 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, there are more individual courses, sometimes offered in schools of education, in phys ed programs. And there are research, initial research, developed in these programs, uh, Focusing on how teachers can better management uh, sport activities, so on and so forth. So I would say that in, the, in 1957, Walter O'Malley, then owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, wrote a letter to a professor at Ohio University asking for, you know, where can I find a person who, uh, by virtue of education, can be... Uh, can it, by virtue of education, is capable of administer a uh, sport facility such as a a racetrack, ski resort, and stadium, so on and so forth. And that led to the first graduate level sport administration program at Ohio University in 1966. And then in the subsequent decades, that one program, Expanded the program of sport management expanded across North America. In at the end of 1970s, there are more than 20 of those in North America, and in mid 1980s, there are there were 63. And um, last time I checked in 2019, there are more than 500 such programs in the U.S. and more than a dozen of them in Canada. More than 30 of them in Europe and also some um, in other continents such as Oceania and Asia, they were also uh, growing. So so I would say that uh, accompanying the uh, proliferation of those programs was also the establishment of professional associations such as the North American Society for Sport Management, NASM, first emerged in 1985 and the equivalent of that in Europe in 1993, and the equivalent of that in Australia and New Zealand in 1995. And uh, going into the 21st century, there are also professional associations um, established in other continents. So long story short, we, we can see that sport management really had a tremendous growth in the latter half of the 20th century, and um, it's obviously started as as a phenomenon within the uh, Western capitalist countries, uh, and then it has a growing impact to other parts of the world. So, I say all of that to uh, to set up my 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 arguments to be made in uh, the goals of capitalism in sport management.
0: No, that's awesome, and thank you, by the way, for doing that because that's really clarifying
2: yeah yeah, yeah that, of course of course so so um when i when I talk about the ghost, I use the term ghost I draw that from uh a few uh scholars in organization studies in Europe they were critiquing the uh a similar phenomenon in business school. They argue that, you know, uh, capitalism has a lot of, has a huge impact on the things being taught, delivered in business school. But Mm -hmm. in business schools, it's never said. The name of capitalism is never said. (laughs) It's just treated as this, um, it's, 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 when people are talking about business, when people are talking about how to make a business work, it's almost as if it, ha- it takes place in, in a void. It is both a historical and decontextualized, mm-hmm. as if capitalism is, the by default, the socioeconomic system, the context where business activities takes place. I read
0: that Just to add to 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 that, it's like Adam Smith, right? Says that the the natural propensity of human beings is to truck, barter, and trade, right? And it's like there's a reason why that text is so foundational because that's the perfect logic for the kind of neoclassical approach that shapes how we understand the so called market.
2: Why everyone in
1: school reads it.
2: Yes. So I, at the time, to be honest, it was. uh, when I wrote that article, it was we're in we're in the midst of a uh, COVID nineteen pandemic, and obviously there was this contradiction of everybody, at least let's say in 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 West in the West in in these uh, capitalist countries, a lot of activities were uh, were stopping were 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 pausing, but there was there was that there was that impulse there was that. Need for sport leagues and games to continue. I think y'all are doing a great job in 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 shedding light on that uh, throughout the years. So I I came to a point where I w- I was wondering, isn't that the case in 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 sport management as well? Isn't that also the case for all the research that we produce? in in sport management articles the types of you know uh narrative we reproduce in textbooks so out of curiosity out of curiosity i did a very quick search in journal articles textbook and uh conference presentation abstracts i wanted to see do people use the word capitalism when they discuss various types of research happening taking place mostly in capitalist society in the US and Canada Western Europe Australia New Zealand and uh, obviously the result was not surprising a lot of folks uh, 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 mentioned capitalism once at best uh, that was that was very tiny percentage of people. That's very tiny percentage. Of all the materials that I mentioned, maybe let's let's say only less than one to two percent of those articles or textbooks actually mentioned capitalism as a term. As a term, so for the rest of them, it just never uh, showed up in in the text. I'm not saying that. That's the only uh, criteria with which we can, we, can, we can see if people engage with the concept or phenomenon of capitalism. I say that in the article, it's just a snapshot, but I think it's a helpful snapshot. It's a helpful snapshot for anybody in our field, goes to conferences, hearing conversations in our hallways, in our classrooms. I imagine not many, not many of them would disagree. So I think my, my argument is that capitalism has such a fundamental, tremendous impact of the sport industry. And I have to draw from the uh, excellent book by British historian Tony Collins, who argue that modern organized sport is, has been a product of capitalism since its birth so the the with that i think it's it's easy it's it's inevitable that we need to sit back and 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 think all the managerial activities that sport management scholars are interested in are inevitably impacted by capitalism or structured and conditioned by capitalism and uh well if if I would say it's it's. I think it's necessary for people who like capitalism and people who dislike capitalism to both say it aloud that we are working in a capitalist society and the type of sport, organized sport, we study, we watch, are conditioned by capitalism, whether you like it or not. And unfortunately, a lot of the f- folks maybe they they. They think there is no alternative to capitalism. They don't say it. And for those who have a problem with some issues present in, a, for let's call that, for a lot of folks who have issues with um, how sport is organized today, when folks talk about racism, gender inequality, ecological uh, uh, damage or consequences, um, I, I, w- I would categorize them as, "Quote unquote social change scholarship," the the progressive uh, group of folks. Many of them, I I have huge respect, and many of them obviously has supported me in this journey. They still do. They still do not name capitalism. They would. They would name the sources of issues of oppression as either. Um, you know, if if the analysis is against. Is, is about uh, racism in sport, then if the analysis is about the oppression of LGBTQ folks, if the uh, analysis is about the, uh, uh, the the oppression of women in sport, the analysis most likely would stop at calling out the oppressors, quote-unquote oppressors, though they're men, because heterosexual, they, these are men, heterosexual people, white people, and stop at you know, pleading these powerful individuals to "quote unquote" reflect, with the hope that change would happen. And I would say, uh, 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 in other in other cases, when our colleagues critique things like systemic oppression, systemic change, discuss systemic change that should happen in sport, it's it's hard for me to. To tell what kind of system they're talking about. What kind of system? Are you talking about changing the system of governance of a sport organization? Or are you talking about the system that is capitalism? So um, I think because of those important interventions prior to the article, because of those important critiques on those specific Identity, I would argue, more or less identity-based uh, critiques. I thought that was a right time to just lay it out and just <laughs> lay, lay, lay it out and, and let everybody have a conversation. Like I said, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not, mm-hmm. we should name it so that our analysis can be more nuanced, so, uh, so that our analysis could be more direct, straightforward. And I think that's yeah. that's going to be beneficial to, to everybody, to everybody.
0: Okay, that's great. And to so let's keep teasing this out. So bracketing for a moment the complications of our own personal implications and the problematic political economy of higher education, although there are, of course, relevant considerations always. I want to kind of just, if this is just pursuing exactly the same line of thought you're already on, but I want to pointedly ask, in a very roundabout way. So I'm going to ask now, but I'm going to then elaborate at length, and then I'm going to come back to you. I want to pointedly ask whether you consider sport management to be a legitimate field of inquiry and a site of institutional knowledge production. And in order to to sort of elaborate on that, I want to bring up another really important intervention in the field, which was Joshua Newman's excellent 2014 article, Sport Without Management, in I believe the Journal of Sport Management, in which, and I quote here, he challenges a number of assumptions, assumptions that the ascent of sport management is a natural or organic phenomenon, assumptions that sport and its myriad formations exists principally as a commercial activity, and that its pedagogues, students, and practitioners should concentrate their efforts on regulating athletic and sport-based organizational consumer and participant behaviors in ways that will maximize efficiency and profitability. Uh, That's the end quote. With all due respect to Newman, and I say this as a compliment to both, no one has come as hard for sport management as you. Do you agree with his assessment and what you make of his ultimate injunction, which is, I quote, I am proposing here, he says, that we entertain the possibilities of a sport without management. Not in the sense that we should abandon all the managerial technologies that we have spent so much time and energy establishing, studying, and refining but rather that we might benefit from a little disciplinary vertigo, end quote. Now, I should additionally note for further context that in a response article, Bob Stewart challenged Newman's premise, and Stewart argued, quote, it should be remembered that management's focus is planning, strategy, leadership, promotion, consumer research, efficient resource use, financial viability, job satisfaction, and customer service. This is the essence of the discipline. Since it is all about mobilizing resources, to deliver community benefits. Sport without management also complains that sport management's conceptual models privilege profits and operating surpluses over equity and inclusiveness, and therefore tacitly contribute to the theft of workers' wages and the support of exploitative pricing. But sport without management's argument is extreme because it is unwilling to concede that profits and surpluses are legitimate indicators of a supplier's capacity to deliver customer value and ensure a sustainable enterprise. So again, just to bring it back here, I'm really curious how you kind of understand Newman's intervention of sport without management, how that sort of fits within the conversation we're talking about. And if this is really what I'm asking you, can sport management be redeemed. Is this an epistemological project that should exist?
2: I think it's less helpful for me to sit here and assess whether sport management is a quote-unquote legitimate field of inquiry or a site of institutional knowledge production. As I alluded to before, it is definitely quote-unquote legitimate to many. Um, no less legitimate to its parental fields of management and business studies. The real challenge for people who have progressive, I would dare to say revolutionary politics, is to first consider that sport management is here to stay for the time being, and it may not go anywhere anytime soon. And secondly, we need to think about what are some of the possible strategies to make critical interventions to its knowledge production and educational pedagogical processes so that resistance and disruption could be sustained as long as the field exists in its current form. As far as um, um, Joshua Newman's article, I, I wholeheartedly agree with his Argument. I I actually learn and benefit a lot from that particular article. I I also mentioned in the naming the ghost of capitalism peace. Um, the the technology of managing is just technologies that could ideally be wielded for other purposes other than making a profit. And uh, and if, and I also argue. I also. Uh, Draw from a British British scholar. His name is Martin Parker's point that instead of talking about managing, we can think about all the tasks associated with organizing an event, for example, as organizing instead of managing. And uh, those technologies can stay. And uh, I would also say that um, there are significant benefits from what Newman called quote, disciplinary vertical um, in that even some of the sociological theories that shed lights on the mechanisms of how a society works, shed lights on power relations within a given context, not even the radical ones, would be very helpful for uh, sport management students to, uh, to understand. But I think there needs to be more than that to "quote unquote" redeem sport management. And let me let me also just go down to to respond to uh, uh, Stewart's responses to Newman's article. Um, yeah, of course, of course, I see where he was coming from in in saying that. Uh, basically, capitalism has a lot of benefit uh, outcome has resulted uh, capitalism has a lot of has created a lot of great things. it brought benefits to many look at the the number of billionaires look at the number of billion look at the number of billionaires here today and uh, I have to also draw from marx and Engels who talked about the progressive role that capitalism has created uh, in, in a particular historical juncture, creating, within a hundred years, creating more wealth than the totality of all human society to date. But at what consequence? But at what consequence? So to Stuart's point, when he said profits and surpluses are legitimate legitimate indicators of the suppliers capacity went to, capa- to store's point when he said profits and surpluses are legitimate indicators of a supplier's capacity to develop de- to deliver customer value and ensure sustainable enterprise, I have to ask, sustainable for whom? Mm-hmm. At what price to the exploited workers, And the environment. What are the social and ecological consequences of that? And when we talk about the the wealth created by capitalism in history, at what price? At what price? Four hundred years of of colonialism, slavery, and uh, as as we are sitting here in in the northeast of North the continent of North America, the the ecological uh the- eco- the ecological disaster loomed large in front of our own eyes so mm-hmm. so I would say that um i think it's it's helpful it's helpful for those who believe in capitalism to lay out their assumptions and and I think that creates an opportunity for us to honestly engage in this conversation
1: yeah and and kind of on that note. That kind of is where our question about legitimacy keeps kind of popping up here. Because, yeah, certainly it's legitimate to people. Certainly people find sport management and scholars and students working on it find it to be legitimate. So, yes, of course it's legitimate because what's legitimate to you might not be legitimate to anybody else. But the the deeper, perhaps to not use the word um, legitimate, we could just use the word useful. Is sport management useful? In society, we agree it's here, it's not going anywhere. But I think the question here that we're kind of highlighting is that sports management orbits around capitalism. And as you've articulated incredibly well, uh, sport capitalism harms, exploits it, a- it actively. That's its job. Great, it's wonderful at producing wealth. But what it actually does in producing that wealth is, by definition, to exploit, to harm, to um, commit violence on various, pe- various groups of people. So my question is, if that's true about capitalism, then perhaps we are in agreement that there is no ethical consumption within capitalism. So then the question, therefore, based on uh, our, 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 everything we've talked about, that the sport management kind of orbits around capitalism, is there is there room for ethical scholarship and pedagogy within sport management as a discipline?
2: Yes, I would I would have to agree with your assessment, Derek. I think, um, I think as I I'm working in a U.S. institution with big time college athletics um, programs, I have to say that, you know. I, I want to approach that question in this way in that many young people, many young people they watch e s p n, they watch sports center, they watch the spectacle growing up on this age in 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 this age um so they they wanted to be part of the sport industry and uh they come go through the sport management program in colleges and universities. And uh, many of them, there are almost 500 sport management programs in the United States alone. So I think that raises the question for those of us who are housed, employed in sport management programs. What kind of things do we bring to the classrooms? If it's here to stay for the time mm-hmm. being. Can we use that as a space of intervention? Can we? I, I always I started to approach my, uh, my, my teaching, my, my job in this way. I think in my classroom, there are two parts. It's vocational training, one and education, two. Mm-hmm. So can I teach them how to be a good communicator at workplace? Can I teach them to, um, you know, quote, unquote, be responsible in managing their own time? I may be able to do that. Can I teach them facts? Can I teach them the, the situation, the reality of the sport industry? I can do that. But I can definitely also expose them to, quote, unquote, darker aspects. Of the sport industry and preparing them and equip them of some ability and capacity to uh, think alternatively. Think alternatively. And I have to say that the contradiction that the sport industry has is becoming ever more transparent. Mm-hmm. I think the book project y'all are engaging in is about the exploitation of college athletic workers. And in addition to that, I have to argue that huge amount of unpaid labor has been channeled through college athletics was in the form of interns or full-time students. Many of them spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week.
1: Mm-hmm
2: working for the athletics with the hope that one day their work ethic will be appreciated which will in turn uh, 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 lend them a respectable, respectable job in the sport industry. That's not happening for a lot of people that's not a, that's not happening for a lot of people so I would say that with with the, with the contradictions that, that are blowing up, Within our time, within our day and age, I think it, it's precisely here that requires and demands the efforts of, of, of scholars and educators to make those interventions. Is it easy? It's not. <laughs> is, is it, it, will that, will that uh, uh, attract you accolades and awards? Not necessarily. Most likely not. So I would say that I would say that um, I would say that it's it's a it's a I I say that not everybody is is equipped to to a point to do ethical things in a compromised situation such as working in the field of sport management working in a sport management program it does demand a significant level of mental Fortitude to be able to be able to do that work and uh, and that is now rewarding that may not be uh, fulfilling at the end of the day as as you rightly acknowledge it is here to stay and it, it is it is it is going on, but I would say I always take a take a step back and look at look at the immediate phenomenon mm-hmm. of the sport industry of sport management within the longer durée of history, knowing that it is a phenomenon situated within a specific historical juncture. And, uh, you know, at some point, it will be a different thing. At some point, it may not exist, but it needs the work to transform that needs to start today. And I think every one of us working in sport management can, you know, Ask ourselves what are our responsibilities historically i actually
0: I really like how you kind of position that in that sort of temporal sense um, because in a way what you're also indicating is how much um, sport management as this sort of institution within higher education is also in a way like it's a it's a representational manifestation of the way in which high-performance spectator sport operates in these sort of Western contexts, these Western and Northern contexts, uh, which is to say that we don't normally want to think of and talk about sport in this way as a kind of labor, right? As kind of brutal labor, a form of exploitation and so forth. But by highlighting by 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 focusing in on sport management as a kind of case study we can see that the, the the managerial approach through which sport has come to be understood in the academy academy represents exactly what sport is in society sport management as an institution is serving a very instrumental purpose for the sport industry it's extra, it's, it's training precisely the sorts of of folks that will be working in administrations around sport. And the job of those administrators is to extract performance and value from players. So in studying sport management, we also get a real window into the sport industry. But then as you're saying, if we want to revolutionize what sport means in our society, right, then of course, accompanying that, there needs to be a revolution in terms of how we quote unquote manage sport or how we think about it from a managerial or not lens. That's part of like the sort of the exact same project. And these things have to work hand in hand.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh yes, I, I have I I I wholeheartedly agree. But
1: the only the only thing just a push back, like I not push back, but like provide some sort of um counter perspective is and maybe this is perhaps because i teach a lot in criminology so i'll lean on that side as well absolutely what you say is correct there are practical conditions that kind of need to change um before revolution in order to get get revolutionary perspectives into the management of sport uh, much like the criminal justice system you have to teach them the ways to get in which are often um based on like status quo and based on this the criminal justice system is not going to hire someone who's written a book on the abolition of um, of criminal justice systems, unless it's um, very specific what they're looking for. Um, so, so what I'm kind of saying here is, it's great that I, as a as an abolitionist uh, abolitionist um, teaching uh, in criminology classes, it's great that I'm there to say um, to to give the lesson lessons about abolition to people who will. Most likely, or more likely, uh, eventually enter the criminal justice system. But what I'm, uh, what I've been alluding to the whole time is, if the entire academic discipline is orbiting around keeping the status quo, you will always, uh, because of that, by definition, you will always be ostracized, even and, and kept to the outside, even if you're trying to. So you might get one person into a sport management position that is. Uh, Revolutionary. But as the system grows and as more people enter, more people, disproportionately, more people will enter the system. So those voices that are revolutionary will be more ignored um, and they will kind of uh, decrease naturally in that system. They'll become overwhelmed by others. So when the the question that I have that uh, I continue to grapple with about uh, sports management that I have about my own work in criminology is when the discipline is based on keeping the system the status quo, is it ever possible to do literally anything um, revolutionary in that space?
2: I, uh, I strongly echo with your sentiment, Derek, and uh, I would have to you know take a slight step back and say that phrase many times, and I have to say that within higher education, the, there, is, there is not a lot of difference in that I would say that many could argue that some disciplines are more transparently serving the interests of capital. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if we look at across the board... <laughs> Good point. It's 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 not like there are real quote unquote revolutionary uh, <laughs> uh, uh departments programs. Yeah. And I think the best the best one the best thing that one can do is to I have to quote Walter Rodney mm. to be a guerrilla intellectual. And uh and uh and I personally I don't I don't I don't want to impose this on anybody. Mm-hmm situating situating higher education university colleges especially within the capitalist countries i would call the united states as an as an imperialist country it's fu- it's founded on stolen indigenous land it's mm-hmm. it's it's serving as an arm of the settler state it's no. its very existence is not to bring up Is it's it's very existent is not to bring up justice to everybody. So I would say that, with our understanding, I think I recently I'm I became interested in the term of professional managerial class that describes the type of you know uh, salary mental worker, which Mm -hmm. obviously includes university professors that are engaged in. You know uh the work of mediating class conflict mm-hmm. uh reproducing capitalist relations of production, so I would say that it's just a uh, a difference in degrees, but there is no fundamental difference across different disciplines, mm-hmm. particularly if we consider that those let's say science disciplines they are not in they are not overtly serving capital but Unfortunately, they are. They are, and thinking about the context where those knowledges are applied. So yeah. that that would be that that would be where I'm at. And to to sum it up, and I have to quote um, Stephanie uh, Stefano Harney and Fred Moten, who says something. I'm quoting here: the only possible relationship to the university today is a criminal one.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'd like, listen, that's uh, an incredible um, rebuttal. And I think that was like underlying my, my question there was absolutely like viewing the, the trend in contemporary mm-hmm. neoliberal universities, there's no such thing about being involved or no possibility of being involved in universities without being a massive hypocrite if you are critical. Um, so I wasn't targeting you specifically, but more so the entire system. Of higher education um, and I think we could have a, an hour long conversation about how uh, the system of higher education has increasingly over the forty wow. years become not about uh, knowledge production not about a moral kind of commitment to finding facts but about training people for capitalism and therefore everything I do I have to acknowledge I am my job is not to 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 translate knowledge to students, it's to train them for capitalism, and I have to deal with that uh, um, internally, um, and I have to play those kind of mental games in my own mind. Um, so it's not just sport management as well. Um, so no, absolutely, no, that's true.
0: That's true. And actually, let me just say because I think that an interesting aspect of this, in terms of this sort of the PMC, the professional managerial class question, is on, on the one hand, yeah, you know, I absolutely get the point that there's a way in which the academy is like a site of technocratic training for capitalism right like we're the institution is asking us to do the work of of reproduce producing and reproducing subjectivities that will fit into a capitalist world, right? And sport management is like a perfect um, representation of that because it, because as you pointed out, Chen, it's, it's honest about that. It says that that's mm-hmm. what it's doing. Yeah. And so we can see so clearly how it operates in the context of sport management, but it doesn't mean that's not happening across all sorts of other disciplines in all sorts of different ways. After all, all of these different disciplines today are defending themselves based on the premise that actually they are providing really good occupational training right? Like yeah. English will allow you to do a close reading. So that's going to help you in certain fields or, or whatever, right? You, but you, you see what I'm saying? They're all instrumentalizing themselves in that way for capitalism. But at the same time, just to talk about the... So, so that PMC argument is in a way an indictment of the those who work in universities as a professional managerial class, which is reproducing capitalism, right? But at the same time, I think we would be remiss in not acknowledging that the university is also a site of labor struggle, including for the people who are doing that work of ideologizing for capitalism. Which is to say that the professoriate, which is increasingly adjunctified, right? Um, So we, we of course, we have like a small, an increasingly small class of tenure-stream professors, which all of whom, like all three of us are in that category at this point. Um, But the vast majority of university teaching is being done by either non-tenure-track, precarious in various types of way faculty members. And then we also have the entire sort of sphere of graduate student labor, which is also absolutely vital to the function of the university today. So there are a lot of people who are doing that work who are also precaritized by the system and I think have an adversarial is what I'm trying to say, relationship both to the institution and um, to capitalism itself. And I, don't, I think we don't want to lose sight of that because there's in a way, as much as you know, we, the PMC lens asks us almost to indict every part of our project, and it, may, it almost forecloses even revol, like revolutionary possibility itself because it's sort of saying we're just all reproductive instruments of capitalism. But if we take the labor lens, like we're actually in an adversarial relationship with the university, and if we start to look for sites of solidarity, maybe there are still ways within the current system to imagine a better path forward, not by ignoring labor, not by fetishizing being a professor, but actually by really um, confronting how antagonistic the labor dynamics
2: actually are. I couldn't agree more Nathan I couldn't agree more I would say that I, I I I if I were to go on with what I just said I would have to also clarify that yeah. my my incorporation of professional managerial clause in my analysis does not at all mean that it is not in a precarious increasingly precarious condition and uh and in addition to that, I would say that it is precisely the precarity that we all face. Um, it demands us to have a clear-eyed analysis of where we are at and whose interests ultimately should we align ourselves to. And um, and uh, I would say that, um, especially to your point about, you know, uh, the the more precarious uh, groups in, in in this rank the graduate students the temporary teaching folks I would say that it's I became more aware of understanding that if one chooses to pursue a graduate degree I'm always asking them are you aware of the labor situation in this field and instead of just having those rosy aspirational understanding of what this degree graduate degree or doctoral degree will ultimately reward you as uh, promoted in the program websites so i i just wanted to say that i completely agree